This is Chapter 103 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we go in search of King Arthur with a female Indiana Jones. We survive the wilderness and the sociopaths among us in the deeply personal thriller from Diane LeBeck. Then we explore the road not taken in an epic coming-of-age story set during the 1960s. Adventure, romance, and old books all come together in the debut thriller from Chris Frieswick. The Ghost Manuscript features a female lead, rare book authenticator Karis Jones, no relation to Indiana, I think, who ends up in the middle of a dangerous dark age treasure hunt. I recently spoke with Chris about her highly entertaining book. If someone were to ask me to describe this book, I'd say it's a mix of The Da Vinci Code, The Name of the Rose, Steve Barry's Cotton Malone series. Why don't you tell us a little bit more in your own words? Well, you know, thank you for all of that, because that's a wonderful compliment. Um, I loved all of those books, and I wanted to write a version of that sort of genre, but with a strong female protagonist who didn't have, like, special military training or specially trained eagle that swooped down and knocked guns out of people's hands or some sort of, you know, super intelligence. I just wanted her to be a normal person who is thrown into an extraordinary circumstance and see what happened. Plus, I love the history and the sense of um, history really still being a huge part of today and contemporary culture. And that I, that I wanted to interweave all of that into this book. Now, I don't know if I go so far and say Karis is normal. She speaks fluent Latin, which I don't think most people can. It's true. It's true. Um, but she kind of does that as a defense mechanism against the world. It's it's a perfect uh, part of her character that she would speak a language that no living humans speak, speak as part of their culture anymore. She, she has sort of hidden herself away in the world of rare books because they don't talk back. Um, uh, that was her whole point of it anyway. Uh, it turns out one of them actually does talk back, and that's one that she finds uh, in, in, her, in her job uh, authenticating a, a collection of ancient manuscripts uh, that belong to one of her primary clients who ends up being institutionalized, and his son has to sell the entire library. And in the course of going through that library to prepare it for a sale, she comes across this manuscript. And let's just say that manuscript talks back. <laughs> I think uh, I think that is enough to maybe entice people to pick it up. Although this is a, another take on a legend that's fascinated people for thousands of years. I don't think I'm giving too much away when I ask you what drew you to King Arthur. So my husband is from the country of Wales, and as you know, when we were dating and we first um, got married, we spent a lot of time there. And uh, his father told me a story about someone that lived near them uh, that sparked, and I, again, I would be giving too much away if I told the whole story, but uh, that sparked my interest in this idea of the history of the area and, and its ancient, ancient roots that goes back thousands, tens of thousands of years to uh, to pagan times, the earliest Roman Empire, the earliest days of Christianity. It's just this rich, it's like walking through a museum when you're in Wales. One of, part of that amazing history is that, that the, uh, the area around where my husband grew up, which is near, uh, near Swansea, that whole area is just filled with Arthurian legend and landmarks that are named after well-known, uh, you know, Arthurian uh, uh, parts of the legend, like Arthur's Seat. And, and it's, it's 
it's just fascinating. Like You cannot go anywhere there without running into something that refers back to King Arthur. So when I was constructing the plot around this book, I had to have my character go in search of something that wasn't just a fantasy, you know, like the Loch Ness. Well, some people would argue the Loch Ness monster is <laughs> not a fantasy either. But, but I started researching the Arthurian legend and the reality of who that person who inspired the legend probably was is so much more interesting, in my opinion, than the, than the legend that sprung up afterwards. Um, let the, the, the reality of this person is that he was probably a very famous general that helped repel the Anglo-Saxon invasions of the British Isles during what's called the Dark Ages. Some people don't like the term, but it was a truly dark period where the literate, um, sophisticated, well-governed uh, Roman people who had been under Roman rule for centuries were suddenly left on their own when the Romans took off and left them to their own devices. And the Anglo-Saxons came down from the north and started systematically exterminating a culture and a way of life. And it plunged into a pretty illiterate time. And the, the reality is the man who inspired the legend of King Arthur was probably a general who was very successful in, in protecting the western part of the British Isles during that period. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I just think that's like 10 times more interesting than sort of Guinevere and Camelot and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so digging down into that and learning about it, uh, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this, is, this is it. This is the story. I can't even imagine the, the number of hours you must have spent researching this book. It, you know, uh, I will tell you that it took me approximately 12 years to write this book. Now, it's not just because I worked on it for 12 years. It's because life proceeded on around me as I was working on it. But I did an enormous amount of research because I know there are so many people out there that know way more about all the subjects that I touch on in this book than I do. And my biggest fear is that someone's going to call me up and say, you totally got that wrong. Um, and also, as a, I'm a lifelong journalist. It's what I've done since I was in my late 20s. Um, I, I, you know, I wanted it to be as accurate as it could possibly be, given that it was fiction. Um, in a way, I kind of throw back a little bit to this idea of the Da Vinci Code being based on real-life people, real-life history, into which you weave a narrative that's your own. Um, and so that's kind of what I've tried to do with this book. Is there anything along the way that you learned that really shocked you? Well, um, again, I don't want to give too much away, but the, the ending of the book brings us back to a place that I never in one million years thought I would go in terms of a physical place. And there, some people have said, oh, that's such a coincidence. Like, how on earth could we possibly get back here again and that the plot would lead us here? Well, the reality is that one of the most surprising things I learned in my research was that that thing, that plot twist at the end, is based in fact. So readers out there, when you get to the end, don't, you know, please know that that's actually, everything in that book is based on something that factually could have happened. So uh, it, it involves... Um, the the uh, some history around the earliest settlers of North America that actually far predate uh, the expeditions by Columbus. I've read to the end of the book, so I'm kind of sitting here going, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's true. So you know what I'm talking about. Um, that, yeah, I mean, if you do your own little Google search on that part of the book that shall not be named, um, <laughs> you will see there's actually quite a lot of of history and anecdote and, and legend 
mushed up as it tends to be from that period of time, the four five hundred A.D. area era, I should say, um, where where yeah, the, you'll see there's actually some some information about about people showing up in North America that nobody figured would have been here. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> are we going to get to read more about Karis's adventures? We sure are. In fact, I'm. I'm. I've been cogitating since I closed the closed the computer on this book, um, the first book about what I'm gonna, what kind of mayhem I'm gonna subject her to in book two. Well, I can't for one can't wait to read about that. The new book is the Ghost Manuscript. Chris Frieswick, thank you for taking some time to talk to us about it. And like I said, I do look forward to reading more about a. Very smart, very cool female protagonist uh, chasing history around the world. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. I really appreciate it. In The Last Woman in the Forest, author Diane LeBeck weaves together a story inspired by a real-life serial murder cold case, her own traumatic assault, and a love for the wild outdoors. We spoke about her thriller, which is about a woman who fears the man she loved may have been a serial killer. I don't think I've ever picked up a thriller where very early on you get a feeling for who the killer is. I would say it's because what I wanted to do was explore the relationship between a victim and a killer, as well as really explore the psychological dynamics of what makes someone a killer and what makes a victim vulnerable. So I think I was taking more of a microscopic look into that really interconnected relationship and dynamic. And your story is based in part on a real unsolved case, the Connecticut River Valley killer, right? Right. So um, what had happened was I moved to New Hampshire from Colorado. I've always just really loved the outdoor settings, it's where I feel the most alive. And I had met a logger, which just felt perfect for me. I, I got to accompany him on his job sites. And he talked to me about the Connecticut River Valley murders, which I had not been familiar with. And it was where a number of women had been murdered in the 1980s along the corridor of Vermont and New Hampshire. And the killer had never been apprehended. And that really stuck with me and haunted with me as we'd walk these, these same woods and areas um, Sean and I eventually married. He was diagnosed with glioblastoma brain cancer, which is a terminal form of brain cancer. So he didn't have long to live. And we hired a home health care worker. And I was talking to that home health care worker one day. And I said, Chris, do you have any siblings? And he said, did you ever hear of the Connecticut River Valley murders? And he went on to tell me that his sister was one of the victims. So again, that really stayed with me. And then when Sean passed, he was surrounded with so much love. He was in my arms. His parents were right beside him. And after he passed, I just kept thinking. What really haunted me was I thought of all the victims where the last face that they see, the last voice that they hear is that of a monster, of a killer. You also weave in a very horrific personal experience of yours into this story. I can't imagine that was easy. It wasn't. And I think I, I came to a point in my life where I felt like it was time to really explore what had happened to me, to not just keep pushing it off, you know, into the dark corners of my life. And what really freed me up to do that was 
I learned that the man who had assaulted me assaulted me at knife point for 12 hours in a filthy trailer. The man who had assaulted me ended up killing his wife and then eventually taking, taking his life right after that. And learning of that, learning that he wasn't somewhere in where he could show up in my life, learning that I was really free, I thought it's time to really explore that. So tying that all in with these other victims and realizing I was one of the fortunate ones I survived, I wanted to really focus on that moment where women are vulnerable, but also where they fail to trust their intuition. Um, you know, too often we're silenced in the name of niceness. And I wanted to encourage women to say, you know, if something feels off, trust that. And I love that you like you make that point at a note at the end of your book, because I think a lot of times, you know, like you said, in the spirit of being nice or being told that's not, you know, that wouldn't be a nice way to react. We kind of ignore that little voice in the back of the head that's kind of warning us that we might be walking into a dangerous situation. That's right, Lisa, we do. And, you know, I just think I can remember a pivotal moment the night I was assaulted where if I had listened to my intuition, you know, things would have turned out completely differently. Um, And the man who assaulted me, he was in a mentor-type position. He was an older man whom I trusted. So I kept thinking, oh, I'm crazy. And I think too often there's probably a lot of other women who've been in those similar situations, Um, particularly if the man has some type of power. And um, one of the things I learned in writing this book is that 95% of stranger-to-stranger homicides are committed by men against women. So there's totally a predatory uh, thing going on here. There's a lot of wilderness in this book. There's a lot of women spending time out alone in the outdoors. And this point comes across that it's a lot harder for women to be alone than it is for men. Right. And, and I'm a person who enjoys my solitude, as do I'm, sh- I'm sure a number of women out there, whether it's we want to go for a run, whether we want to go camping or hiking or even just take a walk. And I don't think men realize the freedom they have. We carry so much more apprehension within us. We have to always be aware of our surroundings. We have to realize everything we do alone like that brings on a risk not just of the elements or if we're in the wilderness settings of, of wild animals, but of human threats in a way that men are not vulnerable in the same way that we are. And um, I wanted to also bring attention to that and not so much as a warning to women, but also as a wake-up call to men of, of what they have. And then also to just really celebrate the courage of so many women who are doing so many remarkable things. Let's go back to what you said earlier about what you were trying to achieve with the book. You got some help from a a real-life profiler. What was that like? Oh, my gosh. It was probably one of the highlights of my life. Not probably. It was. I reached out to the criminal profiler who had worked on the Connecticut River Valley murders. His name is John Philpin. He's internationally renowned. He's written eight books, both fiction and nonfiction. He was a consultant for Dexter. Um, he was the criminal profiler on John Benet Ramsey's case, not to mention a number of over 200 cases across the world. And I did not think he would respond to me. He's retired now, lives in Vermont, and 
I hired a service to find his number and left a rambling message. I was really nervous to reach out to him. And several days later, he called me back. And he said, when I finally figured out to how to spell your last name, <laughs> Diane with the last name I, I couldn't spell, he said, I ran a background check on you. And eventually he decided I was legit. We started speaking, had Skype interviews. We lengthy conversations over the phone, face-to-face contact. He invited me to his home. We spent a, just an entire day analyzing my characters. So we did, you know, we had three things going on. We had one, we were exploring the Connecticut River Valley murders together. Two, we were exploring the ideas of my novel and the characters in my novel where he was in many ways conducting psychological autopsies on the victims in my novel. And then three, he was there for me processing my own personal journey journey with what had happened to me. And so he said, you know, this book is more personal for you than I had anticipated, and I will be there for you in any way I can. As a result, I ended up dedicating the book to John, and I told him, I said, John, it's not just because of the help you gave me on this novel, and I said, it's not just for you guiding me through my own personal exploration, but I said, it is for your life work. It's for your commitment and your time that you gave to try to help all of these over 200 victims and their families. I can't even imagine the type of toll that kind of work would take on someone. Yeah, he still has dreams, um, dreams of the killers, dreams of the victims. It's definitely taken its toll, and he's a remarkable man. We, we developed a wonderful friendship um, talking about literature, nature, music, He's just a fascinating character, and so I decided to uh, model one of the characters in the book after him. So I decided to come up with a criminal profiler in the book based that upon John, and I asked him if he was okay with that, and he said he was. And the publisher even had him, you know, just basically type a statement saying that he was okay with that. So I really wanted to capture his life in the book. One of the things I'm thinking about as, as we're talking here, you know, your book comes to a resolution, but in real life, this this Connecticut River Valley killer is, is still out there. Is there, in everything that you've done, do you think that'll, that'll ever come to a closure? You know, I don't know. I just, I certainly would hope so. I know when I when I watched the announcement that the Golden State Killer had been identified and had been arrested, I thought of the, the Connecticut River Valley murders. I know some people have speculated that the murderer was a man who had eventually moved to Florida and killed his his wife and his himself. But there's a number of other people who do not think that was the person. Um, I think some people have some ideas of who they think it might be, but maybe there wasn't enough evidence. So it's really, really disturbing. And, you know, I live in this area. I, I think about it often when I'm out hiking or just spending time with people. So um, I certainly hope there is some conclusion eventually. So I think I'd be remiss if I, I didn't mention more about the role that the outdoors plays in this book, because where the storyline, you know, is dark and deals with some disturbing themes, I feel that the setting that it's in kind of brings all the, the, the positivity and, and the lightness to the story. What draws you to the outdoors? What draws me to the outdoors? I just think that's where I find God. I mean, it just 
the wilderness and particularly when you're hiking in areas that truly feel untrammeled by man, you know, by people, and you can see wildlife in its purest state. Um, I know part of my research with this novel, I was hiking in lichen-enriched virgin forests, and we don't have much of that left. And this was a habitat for the woodland mountain caribou. And at the time I was researching this novel, there were only 12 woodland caribou left in the lower 48 states and only 40 remaining in the world. And to live, to be in that habitat and, and witness that, to me, feels like some of the purest beauty that there is. Uh, I just feel the most alive. And you feel like the last woman in the forest. I do. There you go. When we're when I'm in those spaces, right, that are just so wild, so pure, you know, backpacking off the grid, not on trails, and just standing still for a moment and looking around me and absorbing all of that, you do. You just feel you feel one with God, one with nature. It's just an incredible experience. Well, we've been talking with Diane Lebeck. The new book is The Last Woman in the Forest. Thank you so much for your time, Diane, and sharing these incredible stories with us. Lisa, thank you. I really appreciate the time. In Lone Soldier, we meet Eric Meyer, a young Israeli-American coming of age during the turbulent 1960s, a time of great upheaval both here in the U.S. and in Israel. Author Leo Rosemarin grew up during the same time, but tells me any other similarities with his main character ends there. This is a big book. It clocks in at over 600 pages. And I guess the first thing I want to know is where did you find the time to write since I know you're a full-time hand surgeon? Basically, I, uh, uh, I was able to uh, find time during quiet time, uh, usually between 9 o'clock and midnight. Sometimes I would wake up at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning and write for about two hours. Uh, when we went on vacation, uh, such as going to the beach, my family usually got up at about 8.30 in the morning, and I found uh, I was able to get up at about 4, 4.30, and type for four or five hours. Also, this, uh, this book took me five and a half years to write, so <clears throat> I had plenty of time to uh, get it all together. So the story is set in the U.S. and Israel during the late 60s and the 70s. Why did you choose to set your coming-of-age story during this particular period? It was my coming of age, uh, and I was basically between eight, 18 and uh, uh, and 21 years old during that time. And um, when when you grow up and uh, you transition between uh, teenage years and young adulthood, uh, there are uh, a lot of issues uh, that people have. Most people have uh, sort of uh, trying to tie things together, find your place in the world, and. Uh, there were a lot of things that um, could have been, might have been, would have been, and uh, these uh, things formed a narrative in my head for decades. And uh, suddenly, about uh, six or seven years ago, um, it sort of popped in my head to write a book, which is essentially a what if. What if I was this, or what if uh, this would have happened, or that would have happened? A lot of people have that in their head, but they're never able to formulate you know, formulated into a book. So uh, I started to write uh, without realizing I was going to write a novel, and then things suddenly uh, fell together. So your main character in this book is Arik, and he goes through 
a lot. And there are a lot of what ifs. Is there any of you in him? No. <laughs> no. Um Arik is uh Arik is my yang to my yin. Uh, he is he is everything that I wasn't really and uh he did everything that I perhaps wanted to do but never did. Uh I he achieved things that uh I never achieved. Now I'm I'm fairly happy and proud of what I did do, but there are always lingering questions about things I never did. And I think everybody has that. And, uh, and I decided to sort of put it all down and to tie it all into a coherent story. Uh, once the thing got started, it felt a life of its own. And your story does feature a mix of real and fictional characters. How did you decide how much truth you wanted to include in your story of fiction? Well, um, I needed to get the audience into that time period. And many of the people who would be reading this weren't alive during that time. And uh, and perhaps if they're not academic, uh, they might not look deeply into what it was like during that time. And it was such an important time um, in the United States with the civil rights struggle, the war in Vietnam, uh, uh, the U.S.'s burgeoning relationship with Israel. And then Israel, really after the uh, Six-Day War and before the you know, 73 war was a very uh, transitional time for it as well. And um, when when you write a story, uh, to put the reader into that time period, you really have to put the characters uh, into that time period and, uh, and trying to put the reader through the eyes of the characters, one really gets a sense of it. Now, of course, uh, there are going to be people uh, around today that uh, that are going to say, well, I was there, and that's not how it happened. Um, and I think that's okay. I think that the reader knows that this is a historical fiction, uh, and a reader will forgive a uh, an author uh, for not telling the entire truth <clears throat> about events. But the reader will not forgive the author for misrepresenting people. Uh, you know, you can write anything you want about Julius Caesar, and no one's going to get offended. But <laughs> if you write about people that either are still alive today or whose family members or children or grandchildren are still alive, they'll look at this book and say, well, did he get my grandfather or father or mother? Did he get it right? And that has to be spot on. Um, now, my fictional characters, I beat them up continuously, as uh, you probably know. Quite literally. Uh, I le- <laughs> literally, exactly. Now, I do, I do beat them up, but I leave the historical figures uh, to the judgment of history. I, I never judge those characters, but I put them in, and I spent a great deal of time in my research, not just knowing about the events and the things that they went through, but also trying to get their voice Um for example, like Yoni Netanyahu, he's a he's a huge you know hero you know for not just Israelis but for the Jewish people, and um, I read a lot of books on uh, you know on him, but also I read uh, a book called Letters from Yoni Netanyahu, and I literally this book and all the other books that I read, I not only read but I studied and I highlighted and I went through it again and again, and I really tried very hard to get his voice. And I think I, I think I achieved that. But I'll, uh, uh, if the prime minister ever reads it, I, I leave it to his judgment <laughs> if I got it right. <laughs> you know? I was going to say, you know, this is not all, only 
a history lesson, but I think for a lot of people, myself included, it's also a lesson in a culture that I'm not completely intimately familiar with, and that's of you know, uh, Israeli Americans, Israelis, and the the Jewish culture as a whole, you really imbue a lot of what it means to be Jewish into this book. I do. Um, And what's really fascinating uh, is, uh, so far, uh, the feedback that I've gotten from people, and many of them are my patients, um, and, and about half of the readers are not of the Jewish faith. And I found that to be interesting. I sort of, when I, when I put it out there, I cringed. I, I, I said, I didn't want this just to be a, you know, a book for you know, Jewish readers. I wanted this to be a book for all readers because many of the themes are very universal. Um, if, I, if somebody once asked me, uh, how could you describe a 620-page book into one word? And I think the, the word would be prejudice. And when you go through the book, you see all forms of prejudice. You know, of course, there's racial prejudice um, uh, in the book, but there's also prejudice between classes, the rich and the poor, between Americans and Israeli, preconceived notions between, um, you know, Israelis and Americans, between uh, various groups in Israel, um, Ashkenazis and Sephardi Jews, et cetera, et cetera. And it it just goes on and on. And uh, especially in this day and age, I felt I needed to write a book that would show not just that prejudice is horrible for the victims of prejudice, but it's also uh, incredibly corrosive to those who are prejudiced. And I think that's a real lesson, uh, which is universal. And I've had people, you know, I literally have had farmers from West Virginia come in and they said to me, I read your book. I said, really? I care. What did you think? And he said, oh, I, I learned so much about the Jewish people and uh, and about Israel. I never knew this stuff. So there's also an added benefit. It's um, It explains to people a little bit about what Israel was during a critical time. And what also, um, I, I try to take a balanced view of the conflict. Um, in terms of uh, this book not being a you know a Zionist manifesto, I do present the other side uh, from the Palestinian point of view as well, and I because uh, I do believe that that conflict is much more nuanced than most people let on, and most people will admit, and uh, and until people realize those nuances, uh, the problem is not going to go away. So you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that this has been a labor of love for, for five and a half years it took you to write it. Do you plan yes. on writing something else? Um, I do have some uh, ideas. Um, one is for another full-length book that I really don't want to talk about uh, <laughs> because the, the, the things are not, uh, they're not gelled in my mind yet how to do it. But one of the interesting things that I... <clears throat> that I have in mind, uh, and uh, do me a favor, don't tell my wife, whatever, whatever you do. <laughs> um, yeah, this is just between us. We'll keep it a secret. Um, I won't tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what I'd like to do, if you look at the end of the book, there's a 30-year hiatus between the end of the main narrative and uh, the end of the book. And then there's just one little vignette that sits about 12 years in between. I actually have ideas for many um, short stories that uh, that I would write um, as individual pieces that are not necessarily tied. So if somebody's read the book um, and really wants more of Arik and Dahlia, I actually have 
um, uh, about 10 or 12 short stories. Each one would be about uh, eight pages or so. And uh, that would form another, you know, uh, another uh, piece to this. Um, because those ideas came to me, of course, after I finished the book. And my wife said she'd kill me if uh, I wrote another word. So I, I dared not. <laughs> I dared not write anymore. Well, we'll keep that secret safe for you then. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so the new book we've been talking about is Lone Soldier. Leo Rosemarin, thank you so much for coming by and talking to us about what really is this labor of love. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we feature a steamy historical fiction debut about sibling rivalry and the Irish immigrant experience during the 1800s in New York. Until then, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 80 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.